Thank you for listening to another episode of Recovery Nuggets Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Recovery Nuggets Podcast. I'm your host, David Clemen. This week's guest is Gigi Langer. She is an author. She's written 50 Ways to Worry Less Now, and her new book is Love More Now. She has 37 years of sobriety. She holds a PhD from Stanford University. She's a presenter, a retreat leader, and author of the two books that I mentioned before. Her goal is to help you become calm and wise even during your most troubling times. I'm glad that you're back and you have another book. So I wanted to just have you on and talk recovery and talk about the book and see what happened. What prompted you to write the book, Love More Now? Yeah. Well, I... You know, I didn't think I was going to write another book because it's a lot of work um, and expense. You know, it's it's unless you have a major contract and a major publishing company, which takes a long time sure. and uh, more difficult to acquire, well, regardless of whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it's just a long, long process. So I self-published this one like the other one. And um I again, all the right people came, but I think the reason I wrote it was because I kept thinking that this idea of opening our hearts and living from a connection with our true self, which I was locating in my heart. Some people might think it's their God self or their higher self out here, you know, however yeah. we think of it, but I located it in the heart as open hearted living and, um, I had been writing about that and thinking about it and meditating with it. And I thought that's really worth writing about in a book. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's what I did. Well, I love the title when I was reading. I haven't read all of it, but you sent me the PDF. So I got to glance through some of it. But I love the chapters, the open hearted living. And we'll go through some of those and um, what closes our hearts to love and hope. And, uh, I like the last one where it talks about open our hearts after addiction. And that's a really important, I'm not trying to bury the lead here, but, you know, I feel like a lot of recovery is opening our hearts because we we're so shut down when we're in the throes of addiction, no matter what it is. And so, yeah, let's, let's get into it. So how long has the book been available? Um, A year. Okay, it has been a year, year ago. Okay. Yeah, and um, it's only available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Whereas, fifty ways now I had uh, fifty ways of to worry less. Now I had published, printed by a company. You mm-hmm. know, two thousand eighteen is a yeah. whole different animal. Uh, print on demand was brand new, so I have lots of paper copies. You know, <laughs> paperbacks of yeah. fifty ways to worry less now. To you know, and I'm actually giving them away free for only shipping and handling. So it's like $6 to get that book, but it's from my website, gglanger.com. This book, Love More Now, which um, this isn't video, is it? We're not on video. No, but I'll put a... Yeah. Anyway, I love how the cover turned out. Um, Yeah, it looks really good. Thanks. It... um, it's only available, you know, electron. I mean, you can get an ebook. I didn't make an audio book of it like I did the other one. Um, okay. And you can obviously get the paperback from um, Amazon, but I priced it at like nine ninety nine. That's know? great. <laughs> so it's really easy to get. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's great. And you're you're getting out your kind of your thoughts from meditation and things you've gleaned from staying clean for a long time and you're sharing because eventually it seems like in recovery yeah it's about the drugs and alcohol when i first got clean but as i've stayed longer okay now what am i trying to share and not focus on that as much so we elaborate on that a little bit more sure you know in the 80s there was this guy named ernie larson and he wrote a book called stage two recovery And his idea was stage one is saving our lives and stopping drinking. Stage two is living without having to use. And and how do we do that? Yeah. So he 
I put some of his stuff in this book because in stage two relationships, he did two books. He talks about, you know, those old patterns that are still operating in our lives, like codependency and perfectionism and so on. So um, that's really good stuff. And I think the, um, I just, I had to put that stuff in there, you know, yeah. now I'm, I'm in a book group, which if people in recovery, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do to read some of these other books that are, I mean, obviously in a meeting, you're reading standard mm -hmm. literature, approved literature from your program of choice, sure. but um, to have a, a group of friends especially after you've been through the steps and you're trying to live through these difficulties, it's really nice to have a book study around, you know, I just talked to someone who was doing, um, well, Breathing Underwater by Richard Rohr is such a fascinating yeah. book to I read and read talk about. One. Yeah. But yeah. what a lot of people are reading now is uh, the um, emotional sobriety. Mm. And uh, I'm in a book group, and we're reading two books. We're on our second one by Alan Berg, B-E-R-G. He's a psychologist. And obviously in recovery, and it's it's really talking about stage two recovery. He's calling it emotional sobriety based on Bill W.'s article. I think it was a grapevine article. You know, it's exactly yeah. what you said. Okay, we're not drinking anymore. Now, what about the emotions, how we handle life? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. How do we do that? Yeah. His books are really good about that, and really both of my books are about that, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you don't really. I mean, you tell your story, and I've talked about this with several guests recently. Uh, I found that the longer that I stay clean and in recovery, my story, the using story, is really not that. I'm not that interested in rehashing it much more anymore. Mm -hmm. Um. I share it to identify and so people can relate, but uh, the nuances of staying clean and recovery and opening like your book, you know, loving more now, that's really where the work is for me, for sure. For all of us, really, yeah. because it's about, I mean, shit's going to happen, right? Mm. Yes. <laughs> and that's yeah. why, you know, the subtitle is facing life's challenges with an open heart. So we're going to have these life challenges, and the the big question is, can we get through them without drinking or using or self-harming or eating or sexing or whatever that way of numbing ourselves out is? Mm -hmm. It takes a ton of courage and support to actually live life on life's terms uncut, you know? Oh, yeah. Raw. It, it is not easy. And, yeah. you know, in the first book, it was like, here, I got these two frozen shoulders that went on for two weeks. Here's how I discovered these tools to help me through. And then, you know, my husband started drinking again, my fourth husband. And mm -hmm. here's how I used Al-Anon to get through that. And and this one isn't as much about my personal struggles. And it's not a list of uh, techniques per se. It's more, um, what are the old patterns that we used for survival? that now that we're not using or drinking are still there. So uh, I I found it difficult to stand up for myself at work. I mm. always said yes. And I also suggest strongly in stage two recovery or for emotional sobriety, Al-Anon. I mean, Al-Anon has been a lifesaver for me. Even if I'm not living with an alcoholic or recovering alcoholic, I I like to define Al-Anon as dealing with those patterns and ways of being that we acquired by growing up or being around alcoholics or other dysfunctional people. Mm. I mean, for me, it was in order to stay safe, I have to get good grades and look good. So yeah. the, the essential non-safety of being around alcoholics creates these needs to control our environment and other people, places, and things and where we can work with that with the rest of the steps, you know, another two or three rounds of the steps. But in Al-Anon, it is the same steps, but we're talking about our, quote, need to control. Mm. And that, you know, that's a bugaboo. 
for so many of us because yeah. I was in charge of my own security, right? I didn't have a God yeah. that I could trust or other people around me that I could trust. So I had to force everything. Yeah. Yeah. You. That's a man. That's really good point that you make there, especially about the Al-Anon. Like my sponsor still goes to Al-Anon and that need for control when you are a person of recovery, you know, when you are traumatized by whatever it is, when you're young, you're always, you're either walking on eggshells, looking for danger. And so that's where anxiety and the need for control comes from, you know, like when, and I still do it when I go in a restaurant, I, I sit facing the door. Yeah. You know, because I want to see what's coming. And there's certain situations where if I don't know everybody, I'm, I'm literally looking for the person that may look like they are going to have a problem because they maybe they're the drinker of this event or and your your senses get heightened to look for problems because you're used to okay if i do that like you said the good grades good boy won't be a problem and so when you're used to being around emotionally volatile people it is a coping mechanism and you don't need it as much once you get clean and you're an adult and you move on, but that stuff's deep seated. Yeah. I think it's, you know, we, we get sober and then all of a sudden so many things are better and many things are worse because we can't soften the blow of reality. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and thank God we have the supports we do and the, um, you know, the steps. And for me, it took therapy, a lot mm -hmm. of therapy. Yeah. Um, but I start the book like, what are things that close our hearts and make us not trust ourselves or anything else to keep us safe? Basically, that vibrating hypervigilance. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's two things that I pointed out. There are many others, of course, but um, there's a study called ACES, um, Adverse Childhood Experiences. That's a long-term study of people that had not just alcoholism, but, you know, nasty divorces or mm -hmm. uh, maybe a disabled child in the family that sucked up all the attention. Mm. You know, something that pulled the parents' uh, attention away. And they were so distracted that they couldn't respond to the needs of the child. And so the child internalizes this, okay, it's all, I, it's all on me. I got I to gotta provide my own security because this is a scary place. Yeah. And they followed those people. And of course, there's a higher incidence of alcoholism and chronic pain, um, many diseases, even yeah. when it's, you know, not um, dealt with, basically. So... Because that tension, the hypervigilance, creates all these chemicals in the body that break things down. Oh, definitely. So that's an interesting thing to look at. It's not like, oh, my God, I'm one of these people. I'll never cure. No, it's just, for me, it's like, oh, no wonder I have these soft spots where I get freaked out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I put a book in, an example in the book where... Um, someone was kind of pushing me into a corner about, well, why don't you? Da, da, da. And I said, I need to call the no, why don't? And it was, you know, and I blew up and I said, well, you know, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> I just blew. I was unsafe. I was scared, you know, and I tell mm -hmm. the story there and how I went and used a, a mindfulness technique to get myself unglued from the ceiling because I was freaked, you know, and then yeah. I. I worked through it and I said, okay, next time I'm with this person, I mean, after I worked through it quite a while and owned my own part, which is, yeah, I got yeah. some soft spots that, you know, I, um, then I plan, okay, I know where the door is. I know how to get out of that room. I know where to position myself. So if I feel threatened, I can leave that I can take care of myself. I'm not a victim right. anymore, you know? So we build these strategies to acknowledge where our, soft spots are our tender spots where we might get quote triggered as they say. Yeah. Um, and then we learn how to soothe ourselves through them. So growing up in a crazy making family or being in a crazy making relationship for years and years can create those 
uh, those patterns that just yeah. keep getting clicked in and and keep sabotaging our work and our relationships, and even when we're not drinking, you know. Then the second thing I put that can close our hearts is um, being a highly sensitive person. Now, what the heck is that? Um, and there is some research by this gal, Eileen Aaron, that A-R-O-N, and she's okay. studied many different cultures even. And her thesis is one out of five people is highly sensitive. That means that a lot of bright lights bother us. A lot of noise for a long time bothers us. We need more quiet time than other people. Uh, easily overwhelmed in big social situations, much prefer smaller. Um, and she, here's what's so cool. I read it and I thought, oh God, that's me, you know. And then she said, <laughs> in the, those cultures, those highly sensitive people often became the sages and the advisors and the wise ones because of that ability, you know, they call empathy now empaths. I, yep. I don't wouldn't call it necessarily, but we are very sensitive. Um <clears throat> excuse me. She says if we learn to take care of ourselves and to nurture that part of ourselves and appreciate it. Well, I grew up in a family of very gregarious people. And I was highly, you know, am highly yeah. sensitive. And I, you know, I created my own space and I was in there quiet. And of course, I always felt like a freak. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, everyone would say, oh, you're so high maintenance because I <laughs> needed to take care of myself, you know. And finally, I grew into it and said, yeah, I'm high maintenance, you know, and that's okay. I know how to take care of myself. That's and, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so the same think, way. But I, I, I agree with all that because I think a lot of people that suffer from addiction, they whatever they were using was because of the sensitivity and they wanted it to stop for a minute, just a break from the feeling everything. Exactly. <laughs> everything all the time, you know, from the mind to the heart, just everywhere, you know. And um, I still... You, you basically described me like I don't... You know, when I used to part, I used to think I was a fun partier but i actually was a double-fisted drinker because i didn't know what to do with myself so i figured if i pounded i had something to do and then i could continue to be the life of the party or whatever but it turns out i just was like probably had some social anxiety when i got in those situations and so exactly. that's how i dealt with it with kind of a lot of us will overcompensate certain parts of our personality to to deal. So I appreciate for you sharing that. Yeah, for sure. And what happens is we stop trusting that there is something in us that can take care of us mm -hmm. when we're driven by those fears and those old patterns uh, because they don't work. My people-pleasing in my marriages did not work. I never told them what I needed. I never acknowledged that I never set a limit. I didn't know. I just tried to be what they wanted me to be. And then I'd get tired of it after three or four or five years and I'd leave, you know? Mm. And so that, and, and that's what I like about Ernie Larson stage two. He, I put those in my book, you know, one of them is people pleasing, mm. uh, but you know, in my family, the only way to get attention was to be find some niche in the family that no one else had occupied. You know, I was the smart one. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's yeah. what I wrote all the way, you know, to all those degrees. Yep. And and then if I failed at something, then I was going to die, right? Because my old childish thinking thought my security was hanging on that. So it's like the fourth and fifth steps and sixth and seventh when we acknowledge something that we've been using to provide our own emotional security through our own will and our own efforts. And eventually we come to realize, oh, my worth is established by my higher power, by the loving hearts of the women who are in my tribe who finally show up. You know, it seems like when you're early sobriety, you know, I don't have all those friends that everyone else has, but you keep going to lots of meetings, you keep showing up and they come. Yeah. So, um, you know, that 
that people pleasing, I think, is one uh, relationship killer, and yeah. and work and health killer. You know, not being able to say no at work, and you know, no. I love in in Al-Anon, no is a complete sentence. Yes, it is. So, how would you how would you define people pleasing for you? Trying to be the person that the other people want you to be. Mm-hmm. Not because it's a choice, it's a need. Mm. It's a demand from my insecure self that doesn't trust my open, true self that I got to manipulate the environment to be okay. And if it doesn't work, then I'm really screwed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, this is such a good topic. You know, it, it reminds me of a couple things, but. <clears throat> It also, if I people please, then I have a fear of what the other person will think of me and that image. And then the other part, like when I was married, um, I realized that if my wife at the time made a meal, which is a, is a, one of the nicest things you can do for somebody, and then it's not something I particularly care for, and she says, how is it, Okay. If I say, even though I don't like it, if I say, oh, this is great, and then it is made again next week, well, who's, who's fault? You know, that's people pleasing in a nutshell, because then it's been made again, but I really didn't, I wasn't honest. It's a, it's a deep level of not being honest. And, and we, you know, when you grow up in an environment around eggshells, you just learn to do it. Exactly. And, you know, so many of my amends with those guys I was in relationships was around, I never told you or knew who I was or what my needs were or Mm -hmm. preferences. or I set you up Mm -hmm. to not be what I needed because Mm -hmm. I never told you what I needed. You know, that was on me. And I didn't know myself well enough because I was drugging myself. So I couldn't do it. Yeah. And that goes right in with like, people are not mind readers. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, you know, I think so many of these patterns of, you know, for me, it required Al-Anon and therapy and, you know, kind of, I mean, beyond the steps used just for not drinking. I mean, these are character defects. So people Mm -hmm. might say, yeah, I'm a. I mean, that was one of the first ones I identified in my second layer of going through the steps. Oh, my God, what a people pleaser I've been. <laughs> and that the good news is we don't have to continue that because no. <clears throat> the essence of the steps and and many other approaches to sobriety, not just the steps, but, you know, is that I will uncover this source of wisdom and power within me or within my higher power, wherever it is, that that is stronger than my coping mechanisms, mm. that is that is strong enough to keep me safe and help me to know what to do in situations where I used to just people please. So that helps. There's five there's six of these. And there I, are, yeah. I was gonna get so, to the next um yeah. that was uh well and I was gonna say as far as this to wrap this part of it up, it's just practice. It's like a practice thing to keep exactly. saying, this is what I need. And you, you just have to practice it. Yeah. And I listened to a really great talk years and years ago. And the guy said in relationships, I think it was Hugh Prather, kind of an old seventies person He said, when my wife and I discuss what we want from one another, we refer to them as preferences Mm. as opposed to demands. Mm. I like that. Isn't that great? Powerful, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, there are more. I mean, another one that I could really relate to, of course, was the people pleaser, which is very, I mean, what we were talking about, but the caretaker, Mm. I've got to you know, I can't, I don't deserve care. Mm. I've got to put my needs aside and care for other people. That's a big one. Yeah. And I illustrate that with a story about a woman who's, you know, caring for her elder mother. 
Mm-hmm. Resents her sister for not pitching in more. And then the whole story of how she uncovers that and becomes healthier in that situation. Mm. Uh, perfectionism, I could really get into that one. That was oh, my yeah. primary one. Oh, oh to make yeah. a mistake was my sister-in-law said, why don't you like doing crossword puzzles? <laughs> I said, I hate it when I can't think of the answer. I hate failure. I mean, and and she said the next day, she said, you know, I thought about that. And for some reason, I could hear this because it was such a loving thing. She said, what a shame to not be able to have the fun of doing a crossword puzzle because mm. of hating not getting it. And that that was a crucial moment. And I, I really do trust that there's something, a higher power, a universal intelligence, whatever, that helped her say that to me in those Mm -hmm. words that I could hear it because it busted my denial about my perfectionism and hating to make mistakes. And of course I ran into that writing two books with all the technology involved. Boy, did I (laughs) have a chance to deal with perfectionism and and get over it. You know, (laughs) you're touching on a lot of good subjects. I, um, it, it reminds me of some things that have happened at work. And, um, when I first started working for this family, the owner, He said to me, you know, perfectionism gets in the way of excellence. And I'm like, there it is. I'm like, that's what I needed to hear because he's like, we're shooting for excellence. We still have to do this stuff. But perfectionism just puts the brakes on everything, you know. And I read this book. um, I think it's Kevin uh, Kevin Griffin, One Breath at a Time, or um, (laughs) Buddhism in the Twelve Steps. Oh, neat. he talked about, you know, we can, and I may be, I may have gotten this quote wrong, but basically, and it might be the wrong book, but he basically was saying, you know, we can suffer from the three P's of um, being perfectionist, you know, like if it's not perfect, I can't do it now. So I procrastinate and then I'm paralyzed. Perfect. And I'm like, whoa, guilty as charged, you know? That's, that's great. <laughs> I did put, you know, I, I tried to organize the book into the typical challenges people face. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them was procrastination. Mm-hmm. But I put yeah. some things in there around that. Um, but it's yeah. true. These things that worked stop working. And and they the fear of not dealing with them, saying, well, I'm sober, that's fine. And then mm-hmm. continuing to crash and burn in these situations and not kind of have that wake-up call like your boss said that to you. Boom, wake-up call. Yeah. Because I'm open enough, even though there are still things clogging up that channel of love coming mm-hmm. in to me and out and and makes it harder for my heart to open to other people. The whole job of um, spiritual growth or recovery I believe is just to keep removing those blockages so that we can be more loving toward others and receive love better. And uh, these are the blockages, right? They're just old habits that we thought kept us secure that are no longer working. Yeah. They're definitely our, um, our forms of our will versus the universal will or higher powers will. I mean, we're the conduit, you know, like when I'm, feel like when I'm in my will, I'm having a conversation that flows freely with you today. No problems. Good. But when I get in my will, everything gets tense. I retreat. I'm looking for that perfectionism that we're talking about. Um, It's tight. And that's my will. Almost 100% of the time. Now, stuff happens in life, you know, traffic, whatever. But how I feel tells me a lot about my will versus my higher powers will. (laughs) Exactly. And I think a lot of times we get in recovery and we think if we're achiever types, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to get rid of this character defect. I'm going to get rid of that character defect. I'm going to, and I try to make it really clear that the whole point of acknowledging these patterns is not that you're going to get rid of them yourself. I mean, my experience has been, if I notice something that's not working in my life Mm. or something that's scaring the hell out of me. I don't work on that directly. I up my 
practices. Mm. I up my meditation. I up my meetings. I up my I fill up my sanity bank, my love yeah. bank, my heart. So I'll meditate because that dissolves meditating, guided meditations. Uh, I love self-compassion mm -hmm. where we don't beat up on ourselves for having these soft spots. It's like, oh, of course I have those. You know, look how I grew yeah. up. Okay, yeah. now let's uh, visualize having a more open heart. Let's try a few little simple acts of kindness at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. You know, all these little things that um, practice not letting fear drive the bus. Definitely. Practice letting love come out and, and be our primary purpose, really. Now, the big thing that people said to me when they read this book, what do you mean open my heart to this person who's being nasty to me? What about setting limits? If I open my heart to people, and because I talk about seeing the essence of goodness in them. So this one mm -hmm. person that I blew up at, mm -hmm. I encounter that I encounter that person somewhat regularly. And I I try to see the true self, the, the heart. Mm -hmm. it, at, and I don't say, oh, his heart is all covered up. He'll, you know, I say the essence of him really can't be covered up. His behavior might cover it up. But what is true about his essence of his heart is that he's not trying to be a nasty per person. He's got just like me, he's got some little pattern running. Yeah. And so I can focus on the goodness of his true self, his heart. And that will help me respond in a way that's kind. However, and I put this, um, it's loving but firm. Mm. So if I have to set a limit, I I would rehearse that ahead of time. Or in a relationship, you know, we we try to broker an agreement and then see if it will stand. So it's it's setting limits, boundaries, that's a big, mm. big thing, right? Sure. But it's not like, screw you, you were nasty to me, you're out of my heart. It's a whole process about what's my part, what scared the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt backed in a corner. That's not me. You know, yeah. how do I take care of myself next time so that I can be around a person like that and still take care of myself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good way to look at it. And also, I, I want to back up. You, you mentioned like what's working. And what's not working is a much better way to think of yourself in terms of, oh, you, you know, that was wrong and this is right. It's not as compassionate or gentle, whereas, well, this is working, this isn't, you know, it's a little bit. And how we talk to ourselves is, is big for us in recovery. Boy, is it ever. That was the whole first book. Mm -hmm. You know, our, um, I called it Whispered Lies. Yeah. You can't be loved unless you're perfect. <clears throat> if my husband loved me, he's do the dishes. And, 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 and all these unenforceable rules and demands, you know, and yeah. dependencies. That's what Bill W. called them, dependencies. Mm. I'll feel loved if X, you know. Well, yeah. totally externally referenced as opposed to referencing my worth. I started saying my worth is established by God. You know, which is how I was calling yeah. my higher power. And I started affirming that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this self, this is a great conversation. The, um, I, with my, with me being an artist, my, I had put my whole identity into that, that I was an artist. And so when I started using and I wasn't making it as an artist and all this other stuff, it made it very difficult to even be with myself because if I didn't have that identity, then I had nothing. I was worth nothing in my own mind. And so in recovery, it's like, wow, being of service to others and not causing harm to my family and, and giving back and like being a part of, I don't even really do that much art anymore. And I don't feel like I'm not worth something. So it's interesting as I've stayed clean and in recovery longer, like my whole identity has changed. 
You know, I'm just a person first. Then I'm in, I'm human first. Then I'm in recovery. I'm, you know, I'm a respected member at work. I'm in a healthy relationship. I have relationship, really good relationship with my parents, a close group of friends. And then I do the podcast, but that's just a part of my life. So it's like this well-rounded thing versus, you know, I'd heard about people talking about, um, we have to be careful with hope, you know, like Pema children talks about, we have to abandon hope. And when I, and we talk about experience, strength and hope and recovery. And so the first time I heard her say that abandon hope, I thought, Oh God, that's awful. But as she talked about it, the reason she says it like that is because when you hope for something, it doesn't let any room for God or universe to move in there. It's what, you are hoping for in this little, this is what you want. You hope for this one thing. And it ends up being constricting versus, oh, I wanted this, but maybe this is better, you know? Exactly. It's like an expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like a condition an, uh, on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I loved um, what's working versus what's not working because that's, you know, being gentle and kind with ourselves is one of the ways we open our hearts to ourselves and to others. And when we're pointing the finger and judging, mm-hmm. we're three fingers pointing back at us, right? Yes. So I couldn't, you know, the more perfectionistic I got with myself, the more I was focusing on other people's errors and judging mm-hmm. them. Mm. And the thing about relationships, I have a little image in here about showing when we join our hearts, we're like connected as one. And we mm-hmm. feel that when we're with our sponsors, sponsees, dear, our closest recovering friends. It's like we're all connected at the heart level. We can mm-hmm. feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, when we start judging and fearing, then we separate everyone. Nobody's worth love. They're not worth love. They're not worth love. You know, mm. So we don't see their hearts. And so the goal is to join at the heart level, even though we may hate the behavior and have to set limits and so on. And so then, you know, how do we connect with our hearts is the key. And, uh, you know, you talked about uh, meditation at some point. And a lot of people say they can't meditate and so on. I use guided meditations and so on. Um, So there's many ways, many of the ways in um, really in 50 Ways to Worry Less Now are ways to flow love in to dissolve the blockages to the heart Yeah, and flowing love out also. But I had a sense you wanted to say something a minute ago. Was I right? Oh, no, we're good. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. So Um, as far as moving the next chapter, uh, overcoming life's difficulties with an open heart, what would you like to share on that? You still have to buy the book, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> She's not giving all the nuggets away. That's right. <laughs> well, I think the key there is um, how do we open our hearts? You know, how do we, when life gets tough, how do we not just withdraw into the corner and say, fuck life, mm-hmm. I'm an island, I got to figure this out, which is my first response, by the way. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I call it the shock and awe. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like this yep. can't be happening, you know. <laughs> yes. And and so the point is not not that we're never going to close our hearts. It's how to be gentle within ourselves when we're scared and something has shocked us and then how to um get re-centered with our true self, our open-hearted self, and that's often I find with other people. Like when my mother was the end of her life and she blew up and started screaming in a scream that I hadn't heard since I was a young child. I completely Mm. regressed into being that terrified little child. And fortunately, I could go into another room and call my sponsor. And she did a, a mindfulness thing with me, you know, be in the moment right now. I'm the adult. I'm back in my adult. Mm-hmm. I'm not that little child anymore, you know, and she had me anchor in, you know, with my ring this year, right here, right now. So we have, you know, tools and friends and support 
prayer often. Um, I study A Course in Miracles, and there's a lot of that in this book. Um, and it really is just a way of learning how to open ourselves to love and reject fear and ego. Yeah. It's really like what the program's about, except it has some other language in there that some yes. people aren't. But anyway, um, so we have all these tools to help ourselves when the heart closes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, support is one of the keys, I think. But also, I use guided meditations quite often. I really like uh, Kristen Neff. She's the self-compassion gal, N-E-F-F, -F, oh. Kristen Neff. And she has some, uh, in Insight Timer, she has some nice free guided meditations. I love one Insight Timer, by the way. Yep. I do, too. Yeah. I, yeah. And one of them is on when we're kind of emotionally upset. And she talks us through how to self-soothe and how to accept ourselves and be with ourselves with a compassionate, open heart, even though we're scared shitless, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it it's just wonderful to have reliable people and tools and meetings. You know, I just up my meetings when I'm terrified. I up my spiritual work. I, yes. Um, it's there are so many ways of keeping our hearts open so that we can be a source of love rather than a source of fear. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, one of the other things I've learned about those difficult situations you were talking about, emotions, and when we're, you know, the mud is stirred up in the water, so to speak. Do we have the patience to let the dirt settle? But also, Kent, when I started to get curious about these really volatile emotions, and it, it I, didn't, I didn't start there when I first got clean, but no. as I've gotten older and meditated more and and really started to look at why did that thing make me so mad or why did it upset me so much? Most of the time is because it was out of control and it was out of my control. Yeah, and so if if you had situations that traumatized you when you were out of control, it's it's like literally putting a hot knife poker in it until I can get better with just surrendering. That's that's been my experience, and it is it, that's not like oh it's hard to get off of drugs and alcohol. It's like you are just there with it. <laughs> It's like you don't have anywhere to run either. <laughs> exactly. There have been but, certain, yeah. But well, and I was going to say, like, if you can survive that, you know, and that's what recovery really teaches us: like surviving our emotions without using whatever the go. thing. Yep. If I can get through it and get honest with myself of why it made me so upset, that's where the that's where the healing is. Yeah. And I I always say, you know, steps six and seven are my favorite in the 12 steps mm -hmm. because six is becoming entirely ready. Mm -hmm. And that's when this um, way of coping with life that's not working anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like I have just one episode with that piece, right? Yeah. It happens. I notice yeah. it. Oh, shit. You know, and that's, and then it happens again mm -hmm. until I'm sick and tired. Um, and that what I love about step six is like it allows us the opportunity to have the wrestling match with God, yep. you know, about control. Mm -hmm. And then finally, it's like, oh, I'm throwing in the towel, man. This is it's too much. And yeah. We go into seven. OK, God, you're the one that's going to get my head straight. You're the one that's going to convince me that my security is in my true self, in my heart, in my higher self, not in whatever it is I'm trying to control. And that is such a powerful prayer. And, and I love the idea that I can do the footwork. I can go to therapy. I can do, but I am not in control of the timeline mm. of how long it takes for a particular pattern that's dysfunctional and hurting me mm -hmm. for that. Just like with sobriety, it took the time that it took, you know, but the good news is we have so many ways to comfort ourselves while we're having the wrestling match. Yeah. With God, you know? We can talk about it. We can laugh about it. I've been there. You've been there. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And thank God we're not cr crazy at the same time, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I heard yeah. that in the meetings a long time ago. Thank God we're not all crazy at the same time. That's right. 
That's right. I might be going through it and you're not, you're, you can be objective and vice versa. And that's how we help each other. So I like this, uh, the last one, the sixth one, open our hearts after addiction. So we've talked, we've touched on it a little bit. Um, how does it, how does it feel for you to, to open your heart after addiction? You've been sober for a long time. So yeah. It feels like joy. It feels like freedom. It um, it feels like we are doing what we were here to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that I, I put that last chapter in because this framework of opening our hearts is a little different from the typical way of thinking about the steps, but it can be applied very easily. And so... One thing I did in the um, when talking about the fourth and fifth steps and six was to <clears throat> talk about how, um, well, I put the principles in there too, you know, like step four is courage. And then, of course, made a searching and fearless inventory. Um, and I, the, the inventory part, I put a whole, way of thinking about the inventory. I actually put it in the prior chapter. But, um, you know, the worst thing we can do in sobriety is act immediately on our emotions. Mm. Right? Yep. It's how we get kicked to the the curb. That's how we get humble. (laughs) When we act right away. (laughs) And then we go, "Uh oh, you know. And so so oh, I did these four R's, you know, we've all heard pause, pause action until serenity emerges. Mm. P-A-U-S. I haven't actually heard that one. Yeah. It's one of my principles of life, you know, that we don't react. I mean, we do react, right? But mm. we learn to hit the pause button because we've embarrassed ourselves enough times right mm. and so we oh, start yes. to learn to definitely <laughs> definitely so, yeah so it's like refrain don't do anything yet don't send the email don't respond in a text don't you know you can you can go to a meeting talk about mm-hmm. it you can do you can talk about it but don't deal with the direct the problem directly yet and then reflect okay what is it like you just said what is it about me that makes us so hard that made me just blow up or made me want to blow up. What is it about me? Where are, where are my little soft spots that are getting triggered here? Mm-hmm. What's my part? Yeah. And um, and then I do a release, you know, and I don't do all, all this in five minutes. It might be days, weeks, yeah. hours. But I then ask my higher power, relieve me of the bondage of this way of seeing this. It, it's not the truth. You know, it's coming from my fear self and I'm distorting it. And then when I have that peace of mind and I'm able to see the other person with a a loving set of eyes, or at least less angry, Mm -hmm. then I can respond. So there's a whole process, you know, and in the fourth step, I also put all those, you know, like an inventory on my people pleasing, an inventory on my caretaking an inventory on those parts because those are that layer deeper into emotional sobriety, especially in relationships. That's great. So does this book have some prompts where you can do exercises? Yeah, it's it's not a how-to book like the other one, although it has stories of people who were in a difficult mm-hmm. situation. There's a chapter about what to do, you know, when a loved one is ruining their lives because mm. that's a really common thing. And um, at the end of each chapter, there is a summary and then some questions for reflection Um, using the ideas, you know, so if people like to write and journal, they can. Um, But yeah, it's learning to live with an open heart, I think, is why we're here, right? Uh, Trying to be less judgmental, less fearful within ourselves and toward other people. So. Not an easy journey, right? But we're all doing it. And look at the successes you've just named in your life and the ones I've yeah. been able yeah. to count as blessings that came from 
doing the next right thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In spite of ourselves, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> in, spite of, in spite of what I thought, I still did the right thing, you know? Um, yeah. Well, we're almost out of time and I'm really glad you came back on because I, this is um, some good topics that are, you know, they're good for another level of recovery. So with that, you know, we know, you know, I ask about recovery nuggets. So for this episode, what would you like to share with people? My little nugget? Yep. Recovery nuggets. I am a spiritual being having a human experience. Mm. And I'm running around in this spacesuit of my body, which is an animal, right? Mm. It has so my primitive brain is constantly afraid. Mm. So we don't need to judge ourselves for that. We just need to be compassionate with ourselves and then use the tools to erase the fear and act more out of love. That's why we're here, I think. <laughs> that's it. So when you mentioned that's that's great. You you mentioned the uh, course in miracles, and then I remember we can talk about this because it's my podcast. I'm sure you've read uh, Conversations with God, Neil Donald Walsh. I haven't read it in detail. Okay. Yeah, because his line. his forward or he talks about he did that. I guess back in the seventies, the Course of Miracles, and then this this book is about him really hitting the end of his ropes. He he was a failed writer. He was basically homeless, and he just got sick of everything in his life. I think he was divorced, and he just started writing on the paper, like asking God questions, like why haven't I been successful? And then he just sat there until whether you believe it or not, God wrote through him. Yeah. And then he talks about one of the main themes in the the book is we do th things out of fear or love. That's it. And and I guess that came from Course of Miracles, but yeah. it yeah. is so true. And it almost feels like self-will is fear. My higher power's will is love. And that's, exactly. and that's really what I'm getting from what you've told me about the book and the little bit I've read. So I can't wait to finish reading it. <laughs> I hope you find it enjoyable and helpful. Yeah. And I will put all the links in the show notes and, um, okay, you know, great. this is great. Well, I hope you have a great time on your cruise. Thank you. Yeah. It'll be fun. And I yeah. will be seeing the open heart of every person and working with my open heart. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Gigi. All right. Thank you, David. It's been really nice. Yeah. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to recovery nuggets podcast. Get in touch with the show via Instagram at Recovery Nuggets Podcast. Also, the email is recoverynuggetspodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Thank you for showing up for your recovery today. Recovery Nuggets Podcast and guests are not representatives of any 12-step program. I'm not a doctor, counselor, or therapist. I share my experience, strength, and hope. Guests of the show share their personal experiences and opinions. Take what you like and leave the rest. Mm -hmm.